Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. Happy 2016, everyone, our first podcast of the new year. Thank you, everyone, for supporting it last year, and I hope you continue to do so this upcoming year uh, as the Pistons make their playoff push in the 2015-16 season. Best way to continue to support the podcast, of course, go to DetroitBadBoys.com, our site, uh, member site of SB Nation. You can find the podcast there as soon as it's up. You can also find the podcast for your listening pleasure on iTunes.com. Make sure to subscribe so new episodes come up as soon as we have them posted, as well as our homepage on Blog Talk Radio. That's blogtalkradio.com slash Detroit Bad Boys. Very excited for this episode. We've got a lot to talk about, and joining me as he does for every podcast is Ben Galker. How are you, Ben? Happy New Year, guys. It's good to talk to you again. Exciting, exciting spring coming. The Pistons making a playoff push. I haven't done this in a while, so good to be talking with you guys. Yeah, this is uh, an interesting position that we're in. I know we want to talk about um, with the team specifically, you know, some possible trades as we as we look forward to the playoffs and some other things. So helping us to break it all down, editor of the Detroit Bad Boys site on SB Nation, Sean Kaur. How are you, Sean? I am great. It's been a few episodes since you've been on, and I know part of the reason is because we have to talk about Hackadrummond. So we're going to have that debate a little later in the episode, but... I'm glad that we could have the both of you on uh, for for just a good old-fashioned Pistons debate. I don't even remember the last time we were sitting in January and the Pistons even mattered anymore, so this is exciting. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. It's uh, very, very nice where they are right now. And uh, we're recording this right before uh, the Pistons take on the Celtics. And it will probably be uploaded right after, so we probably won't talk too much about that game to try to keep it as fresh as possible. But uh, Pistons in a good position inside the playoff picture. Sean, you just mentioned it. Are you surprised by what you've seen of this team so far? Um, just your thoughts through the first almost half of the season. Well, I don't think I'd be surprised only because I'm always optimistic heading into a year. But uh I guess I'm relieved that this is the first year the Pistons have actually lived up to my internal expectations. Things are kind of playing out exactly how you'd think they would, given the talent on the team, uh, strengths and weaknesses. Pretty much uh, going into the season with Brandon Jennings' injury, my mindset was that if the team could hover around 500 until Jennings got back, then they'd be in a really good position spot to actually make a legitimate playoff push. Actually, since the last time we talked on the podcast, Ben, have seen the return of Brandon Jennings playing in a Pistons. How has he looked so far in the NBA, Ben? I think he looks relaxed to the Orlando game anyway. Um, he struck me as a little bit tentative, which is totally and completely a pass-first sort of guy, I think. That's been my observation so far. Not afraid to push us up, but I like what he's been doing in terms of getting other people involved and initiating the offense. So, um, four games, I think it is, that he's played so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say he's been an upgrade. Uh, I think he's an upgrade over what we've had, and that's exactly what we need out of him to to get a little bit better to close the season out. Yeah, and Sean, recently Stan Van Gundy has had to answer some questions about Brandon Jennings' future, and he said that he would even be interested in giving Jennings another contract. Um, I know it's a very small sample size that we've seen so far, but if he can continue to play comfortably, like Ben has said, uh, as our backup point guard, uh, is is that the guy you want having uh, running our second unit with the Pistons? Well, I think it makes a lot of sense from the Pistons' perspective. I think uh, perhaps even more of it will be incumbent on whether Brandon Jennings wants to be a reserve, because he'd definitely be the backup point guard to Reggie Jackson. Yes. Uh, he, he could probably find a starting role somewhere else after this season, but I think the key point is anybody who thought because the team traded for Reggie Jackson that Brandon Jennings was the first guy out of town come the trade deadline, I think that's absolutely not going to happen. The team needs a legitimate backup point guard. They don't have a legitimate backup point guard other than Brandon Jennings, so I fully expect Jennings to be on the team for the rest of the season. And if he was interested in coming back as a reserve, I think he makes a lot of sense considering his skills as a guy in a Piston system. We've kind of mentioned his future with this team. There's been some rumors about a possible trade with Brandon Jennings. Uh, he's one of a few. Uh, he's one of a few expiring contracts that the Pistons have on the roster this season. Steve Blake and Anthony Tolliver are the two others. If the Pistons make a move at the deadline, Stan Van Gundy has said it will probably be a smaller move, probably won't be a big splash. 
Uh, if that's the case, do you see Jennings moving at the deadline right now, Sean? I think there's almost a 0% chance that he moves at the deadline because he's the kind of player you trade for considering the Pistons' strengths and weaknesses, not a guy you trade away. I mean, you just can't essentially punt the season by hoping that playing Reggie Jackson 36 minutes a night and Steve Blake as a stopgap, that's just not a viable solution. So uh, I think Jennings is here to stay the rest of the year. Ben, do you agree 0% or do you think there's a, a chance that Jennings could move this season? Uh, let's say 1%. <laughs> I really agree with Sean's analysis. I think he's the best backup point guard on the roster by miles and miles. And I don't see how this team gets to the playoffs and or matters at all in the first round if they don't have solid bench play. Uh, and so far, I mean, Brandon Jennings is is probably the most likely person to give us that, along with hopefully Jody Meek. So I I forget where it is in the blog, but I think it was um, Jason who actually sent something into the Pistons mailbag, and Keith Langley actually responded to it, um, indicating that the first priority for the Pistons right now is winning and making the playoffs. And I think that is probably a different mindset from where they were a year ago when they made the trade for Reggie Jackson really completely shook things up. So I, going into the season, um, pro, you know, prior to seeing Jennings play and how the bench performed, I uh, thought that Jennings would probably be gone for the deadline, but I've kind of changed my mind on that. And I think Keith Mingham, unless there's just a really great trade that comes out of New Orleans and surprises us, I think retaining Jennings makes the most sense and gives us the best chance to sneak into the playoffs. Right. I, I agree. I think the only way we trade Jennings is if a team is looking to give him uh, a shot at being their starting point guard the way we did with Reggie Jackson and offers up a trade that would provide us a backup point guard. I think that's something we would have to be getting in return. Uh, but then also something that would that would kind of sweeten the deal for us. Uh, otherwise, I kind of see him staying. And I'm sure fans are really happy to hear that uh, because I, I think we all saw on Detroit Bad Boys the way fans reacted to trading away a backup point guard last season with DJ Augustine. So I know a lot of people really like Brandon Jennings, and I hope he's a Piston for for a while to come. I'd love to see him sign an extension in the offseason. It seems essentially that if the Pistons were ever going to entertain it, the the chance to trade Jennings, you would 100% have to get somebody much better than Steve Blake and probably a first-round pick. And to think a person that would be renting a player like Jennings would be willing to give up that kind of haul is very unlikely. It would it would essentially mean that a playoff team lost their starting point guard and got desperate, and I, I think that's a pretty slight chance of that happening. Right, seems unlikely right now. Uh, so I guess just looking at the rest of the roster, is there a likely trade? Is there a player on this roster right now? Sean, I'll start with you. Do you see likely to be traded at the deadline? No, because... The Pistons really have almost zero trade assets at their disposal. They can't really give away second-round picks anymore because they've gotten rid of a few already. They're not in a position where they should or would trade a future first-round pick. And there's really no contracts of any appreciable size that make any sense. The only two are Brandon Jennings, who's an $8 million expiring, who we already mentioned can't really be traded if the Pistons want to contend and Jody Meeks, who's uh, injured, will be injured for the next month, a month and a half, before he sees the floor again, and so probably isn't very tradable leading up to the deadline. And other than that, it's really huge contracts or players on very small rookie deals, and so there's just no tradable assets on this team right now. Ben, do you agree with Sean's take on, on the, the assets with this that team that this team has right now? I actually, I think the Pistons have some desirable players. Um, I think that the complicating factor is what Sean's getting at in terms of the players who are attractive are on contracts that don't necessarily bring back huge returns. So just from a value perspective, guys like Ilyasova, Marcus Morris, Brandon Jennings, uh, even Anthony Toller, Tolliver to some extent, those guys are all such good values at their price points right now that Yes, it would be, I think, attractive trade pieces if someone's trying to you know, bolster up their 7, 8, 9 spot in the rotation. 
Um, but the flip side of that coin is that there's such good values for Detroit yeah. that trading them is probably um, disadvantageous, at least with respect to the short term. Because maybe you could trade one of those guys for you know, an equivalent contract and a future second rounder or something. But that's not necessarily going to make you any better in the short term. And it seems like the short term is kind of the priority right now. Um, so I would say I disagree a little bit in that I think some of those players are actually attractive trade chips. But I completely agree with Sean that none of them are on contracts big enough that would bring back something that's going to move the needle significantly in terms of the short term. And I think that's where the franchise is looking right now. Yeah, I actually agree with you. Uh, so maybe I could have uh, stated it better, but... I guess the the real point is that if the Pistons want to contend, they're kind of a a top heavy team talent wise, and so if they were they have good players, and if they were a losing team, if they had the same record as last year and decided they weren't going to compete, you could easily trade off a lot of these guys and get something in return. But they just don't have the depth to deal with the loss of talent and still contend. So you can't really get rid of an Ilyasova. You can't really get rid of a Marcus Morris and expect you're going to get a player of equivalent talent back plus another asset. And if you're just making a lateral move, it, it just doesn't really make sense to do that. So this just isn't a year that the Pistons should be expected to make a real meaningful move via trade. Yeah, I agree. I was trying to look, and I, I fired up the trade machine a few times just to get an idea of what types of moves might be out there for the Pistons. And, and Sean, you're right, it just doesn't seem that if it was a player-for-player player trade or something close to that, that there's anyone we could get whose value would be close to someone like Marcus Morris or Ursan Ilyasova, who probably have very attractive deals uh, to a lot of teams around the league. So unless it's taking on a contract that's less than desirable, which I don't know if Stan's in a position to do that, I kind of see us playing out playing out this season as is. Uh if we do play out the season as is, do you guys have one player that needs to step up for the second half of the season? Ben, you want to go first? Yeah, I would say Anthony Tolliver. I think he's he's had a couple good games recently, but he started the season so slowly, um, especially compared to the spark that he was last year off the bench. Um, I really like Arson Ilyasova, um, but as we've talked about a handful of times on this show, he's never been a guy who's played big minutes. So by necessity, the Pistons got to get something from that backup uh, power forward position. We speculated early that maybe Stanley Johnson could slide at the slide in at the three, and Marcus could maybe play some four. Haven't really seen that. Uh, so I think Oliver's got to step up. He's got to make the open looks. He's got to start knocking them down consistently, uh, so that we can get some production, especially offensively from the bench. Sean, what about you? I would say uh, if I was going to look at one player, it'd be Contavious Caldwell-Pope. He's playing huge minutes again this season. He's shooting the ball, I think, more than he ever has. And he's just still not converting at a real acceptable rate for a shooting guard. He's at uh, 30, 40% overall, 30% from three. And those are areas you really wish he would be showing some considerable improvement on. He plays such good defense that it still makes sense that he's out there so many minutes, but this team could really reach another level offensively if he could take that next step, and it just doesn't look like that's going to happen this year. I agree. I, I think KCP was the player that I want to see more of in the second half, and what we got to see in the Orlando game when the Pistons won Monday night, 115-89 to 89 against Orlando, looked great the entire game. KCP led the game, uh, led the team, in points and look great on both ends of the floor. And I think that's what we need to see more of is we have to see him step up on the offensive end, become a more efficient player, uh, just find a shot earlier in games so he has the confidence to go to it late. You're right, he's a good enough defender to keep him out there, but that's the guy I really need to step up um, because without him kind of giving us that scoring punch, it's, it, uh, it, it's tough. It, it puts a lot more pressure on Reggie and Drummond for sure. Yeah, and I think it also leads to some, I mean, he's going to take his shots, which, you know, he probably shouldn't be shooting as much as he is, but when he's not making them, that puts more pressure on a player like Marcus Morris, who he's, you know, I've been really pleased with his play, but you can tell that the team is sometimes going to him out of desperation because they're not converting anywhere else, 
And so if you could get some reliable perimeter shooting from the shooting guard spot, then that allows Morris to just take advantage of, you know, opportunities and matchups more than just being thrown the ball in the post with six seconds left on the clock and hoping he can, you know, knock down one of his patented 18-footers. Yeah, it's true, and it would have to help the spacing as well, which probably would give Morris some better ISO looks because I think I think often you see defenders that can kind of slack away from KCP just because either they're 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 basically trying to goat him into shooting, or they want to make sure they put the pressure on you know Drummond, Jackson, or Morris. Uh, so you're right, I, I I agree with you, Sean. That's definitely the guy I need to have step up, uh, and I'd like to see more more of the same from Brandon Jennings uh, with that second unit. I think that's. That could be a huge part of this team trying to make a make a playoff push. Yeah, and I have one thought about that as well, and that's that if you think back to the close of the season after Jody and Nick came back last spring, in my opinion, he was quietly the Pistons' um, answer in terms of floor spacing and shooting. And I think he largely got overlooked, and, and that's fine because of the big trade and Reggie Jackson and all of that kind of stuff. But if say two two to three months from now, if he's at 90 to 100% and he's playing like he did the close of the season last year, I would actually make the argument that he's more valuable, his offensive potency is more valuable in the playoffs than a guy like Contavious Caldwell-Pope who's all over the place in terms of his offensive output. So, I, you know, I, yeah, it'd be great if KCP could step up, but if he can't, I really hope that Van Gundy... Um, you know, manage that shooting guard rotation well because I think Meeks could really be a dangerous weapon. I mean, think about a second unit where you're looking at Brandon, and Jen- uh, Brandon Jennings and Jody Meeks coming off the bench. That can be scary. Those are two starting caliber players in a lot of places in the NBA. And that could really be a nightmare for a lot of backup um, backcourts in the Eastern Conference. You're right. Meeks is definitely a big part of that conversation for maybe the play, very much just the playoff push. It could just be late in March, maybe the month of April that he comes back, uh, if he does come back this season. So you're right, that that could be uh, a big part of it, you know, given just a spark to the bench. And I would be interested what Stan Van would do with Jody Meeks, if we could see KCP maybe play with a bench unit more. Um, and also for right now, I'm kind of interested how he continues to use Stanley Johnson. Uh, ben, so I think we have to ask Sean the question that we now have to ask every guest that comes on this show. Uh, and that is Stanley Johnson's future. Uh, we're talking about him right now, maybe picking up some minutes at the two spot. Jacob, two episodes ago, had mentioned that he could be maybe our power forward, our stretch for the future. I'm not sure if you've given this any thought, Sean, but what do you think about Stanley Johnson as a stretch four? I'm not sure I see that as a long-term solution. I think one of his values is that he'll, he allows a team to legitimately play small ball lineups, but I, I don't know if that's something that you, you know, bake into your starting lineup so much as try and exploit for uh, short periods of time. He certainly has the strength to, to hold up against larger players, but he doesn't quite have the size you want from there. So I still think he has the kind of game that plays well at the three and uh, the athleticism to play well at the three. So uh, I haven't given it much thought. I wouldn't necessarily want to lean that way right now, but uh, I think as a, as a switcher, as a small ball player, that's one of the things that appealed to me coming out of college compared to a guy like Justice Winslow, who seemed much more of the shooting guard, small forward type player. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's very true. Um, so just having him more at the at the three spot, we've seen recently that Stan Van has used him, uh, giving him more backcourt looks and, and getting some time at the two and, and guarding what looked to be traditional shooting guards. Um, so it will be interesting how they use him if it's just going to be as a wing player like he is now. Um, but that's something I had to ask. I had to get your opinion on it um, with Stanley Johnson. I think he also has some underrated uh, ball handling skills. He doesn't quite have the awareness of how to exploit NBA defensive y- defenses yet, but he can dribble, penetrate. He has a good sense generally that he just has to improve on. So I like him as sort of that secondary ball handler type player down the line that uh, perhaps Van Gundy can use as a uh, point forward. 
Yeah, I think there are a couple different tra uh, trajectories for him right now. One of which is kind of what you're talking about. Maybe like a, a Hito Turkoglu kind of player, someone who can be the pass to assist guy, a secondary ball handler, and someone who can be a, a, a solid shooter for us at the three spot. Uh, another is kind of a Jimmy Butler bully ball at the shooting guard spot, but you're right, it's going to be can he learn uh, how to continue to develop as a shooting guard uh, and as a ball handler if he uh, if he goes in that path. But it's his rookie year, so it's, it's a little difficult to say right now. Um, oh, okay. I was going to ask you guys uh, if there was anyone, as we kind of – We've mentioned the, the trade market a little bit for the Pistons. Is there anyone out there, Sean, I know we've talked about Ryan Anderson, uh, anyone out there that you would like to see in a Pistons uniform if we could make a trade happen? Um, if not now, then in the offseason? Well, thinking about this season and thinking about what might be a small move that Van Gundy was talking about, um, I, I kind of look like a, at a guy like Anthony Morrow out of Oklahoma City. He's one of the league's best three-point shooters. He plays mostly shooting guard. He's kind of um, struggling to find consistent minutes in Oklahoma City because he's not really a quality defender, and so he's kind of taking a back seat. So if the Pistons could find a situational role for you know, a dead-eye dead three-point marksman who they could put out with some quality defenders to make up for his shortcomings... I'd love to see a player like that be uh, a Pistons target. Sean, would you trade KCP right now for Anthony Morrow right now, straight up? Assuming the salaries work, I haven't paid any attention to that. But just in terms of the players, would you make that trade? I would say no, only because I'd have to see more personally of Anthony Morrow because he's such a great three-point shooter. I'm always puzzled why he doesn't play more. And I assume that there must be some sort of huge flaw in his game mm -hmm. on the defensive end that prevents him from playing consistent minutes because this guy is like a 44% three-point shooter no matter how many times he hoists it up every night. And it's just, I mean, that's so valuable. So I would say tentatively no, only because I maybe the Pistons homer in me still expects KCP's offense to develop to go with his you know, team best defense, in my opinion. So I would say no still at this point. Yeah, I don't know if I if I would either, and I think it's because you're right. There must be something in his game that keeps him off the floor that had him as, I think he was a free agent at one point last season, uh, even after the season had begun. So there, there must be something we're missing. Maybe it's just that he's a liability at the defensive end. But you're right, to be that good of a shooter, that's such a, a prized such a prized value, such a prized asset in this league, and with how much Stan Van values the three ball, uh, yeah, it, it would be great. But you're right; there must be a reason that that he's not playing more. What would you do, it Ben? I would have to think about it long and hard. But I say I would be probably a little more apt to do it than it sounds like you guys would be. Um, I think his shooting is just so good. Yeah. That, I mean, think about how bad KCP shooting is. I mean, I like KCP. I'm hard on him, and you know, in the comments on Twitter, because his shot is just so broke. Um, and Anthony Marlowe is just the opposite. I mean, he's like league league leader multiple years in a row. Not the league leader, but among the leaders in terms of his three point percentage. Um, every time I watch him, I just I end up thinking. Why does he not play more? Because I don't, I don't see anything glaringly obvious about his game uh, that sticks out to me. You know, he was signed, I think, at the same, the same summer that Jody Meeks was signed, if I remember correctly. And I remember feeling like, man, we gave Jody Meeks more than twice as much as Morrow, and Morrow's actually a better shooter. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's any way to get him from Oklahoma City, but I would think long and hard about a KCP for Morrow trade if it were on the table. Yeah, and you would have to think that backup shooting guard spot has to be one that's that's giving Stan Van fits. If he could find someone to take some minutes away from KCP, I'm sure he doesn't want him playing close to 40 a night like he is right now. Uh, and, and to get someone like that, a dead-eyed shooter out there, would be great. Uh, what we give up, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, if it was KCP, I, I think I would just say no. Uh, but if there was another way to do it, maybe 
Joel Anthony in a second round pick. I'm not again. I haven't looked at the contracts, but it, it's something I would think about. Yeah, Morrow's only making three point three million, so he's on an absolutely bargain basement sort of deal. Wow. Okay. Um, so lots of things can work. And he's also only playing like sixteen minutes a game, which seems a little nuts to me. But like I, I mean, that's kind of on par with where he's been at the last few years. So I don't know. I, I've always, I've always been dying for a true three point shooter on the Pistons, one of those high volume, high percentage three point shooters, and that's just the kind of player that uh, Morrow is for sure. Yeah, definitely. And there, there are not that many guys that can shoot it at the rate he can. So it's it's an interesting it's an interesting player. And also, again, 16 minutes a game. If he's kind of accepted that role, we would have those minutes available. I'm sure we could carve out 15-ish minutes a game for him um, if we could find a spot on the roster. Yeah, and an- another guy I'll just throw out there to go with my Ryan Anderson theory of Stan Van Gundy eventually wanting some of his former players is, um, is who am I thinking Pito of? Tito Turkoglu? No, no. <laughs> Courtney Lee. Courtney Lee in Memphis. On an expiring contract, Memphis doesn't look like it's going to be competing for a playoff spot this year. I'm not sure what it would take to pry him away, but uh, whether it's, you know, trading, renting him this year or uh, kind of prioritizing him maybe in the offseason as some wing depth, I would I could see Courtney Lee as being a target too. Yeah, and, and you're right. If we're just talking about former Van Gundy guys um, – Oh, who was one? During the summer, I really liked Brandon Bass, and I was interested in bringing him in as a guy who could provide some some great free throw shooting. Really, what we get out of Aaron Baines. Uh, you're right. So, a player like Courtney Lee, if he's familiar with him and he fits a role, uh, yeah, maybe we could get him from from Memphis right now. Because you're right, it's kind of looking bleak there um, with their playoff odds. I don't know if he's injured or what, but he's also not playing that much I don't think this year no and he's a guy that actually recently has got some DMPs and that's that's kind of I don't know just interesting to me because he was such a good player and in Boston and in for Stan Van as well Uh, and it seemed like that's exactly what Memphis needed when they traded for him yeah I mean he is 30 so he might be hitting that point of his career where there might be a a marked decline so you got to be a little careful but you know he he is a player that I'm sure Van Gundy would love his all-around game on both ends of the floor uh, with the Pistons. Yeah. Uh, a player I wanted to ask both of you about, and I know he's he's, he's been brought up before on this podcast, uh, Markeith Morris. Now the situation in Phoenix seems like he's out the door, and the owner, at least the way the owner is talking, it could be for pennies on the dollar, uh, if not just releasing him outright. Uh, I guess he could be a bit of a headache as a person, but Markeith Morris, you look at just the last month and a half since December 1st, he has had multiple DNPs, 15 DNPs in that stretch. Uh, Of those, four were inactive when he didn't even dress for the game. Uh, Is Markeith Morris someone that you you, uh, would think about in that backup uh, four spot? Nope. No. All right. (laughs) Simple. (laughs) Ben, you can elaborate if you want. I think we got the better of the Morris twins. I think Marquise, I don't know, for whatever reason, he seemed to be the one that everyone focused on, at least in terms of national attention early on. But Marcus was quietly a very productive player. Um, personally, I look at um, you know Marcus's explosive personality and, and kind, of, kind of inclined to think that one of those is enough. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you look at what's happening in the situation in Phoenix right now as we talked about Jordan. Um, I'm not sure we want to bring that sort of an attitude and that sort of a player into the locker room right now, um, in spite of the fact that he has some promise as a player. I think you look at the way our team handles itself and look no farther than you know the recent sort of um, blowout in Orlando where Brandon Jennings came on and played well and Reggie Jackson was cheering him on, in spite of the fact that those guys are playing the same position there's support for each other. And I think that that matters, especially when you're talking about making it to the playoffs. So even productivity aside, I don't think I would take that sort of a risk uh, bringing a player with that mindset into the locker room right now. And I'll elaborate a little more. 
by, I guess, asking the question, are we even sure that Marquise Morris is a good player? I mean, he had one really super good year in Phoenix, uh, 2013-14, but... Uh, I'll just read off his win shares per 48 minutes for his career. Uh, and keeping in mind that a point one zero zero is considered average starter level player. Uh, 0. 0.059, 0. 0.044, 0. 0.143, 0. 0.085, negative 0. 0.059. Oh, Wow. And, and trending in the wrong direction, too. You're right. I think that's a good question. Is he is he a good player, or are we just looking at his one season? Uh, and could that season maybe just be the outlier of his career so far? Uh, he's, al- he's also a good mid-range shooter, kind of like you know Marcus Morris is. But his three-point shooting in his career, again, starting from his rookie year, 34%, 33%, 31%, 31%, 33%. And in a Stan Van Gundy system where you really want that spacing with a stretch four, I just don't think he fits the mold of a, of a real stretch four, and I don't think he probably ever will for whatever quality skills he, he gives you. He's not going to provide that. And so I would say hard pass on Marquise Morris. Yeah, I, I, uh, I didn't look at his win shares or anything like that, but I pulled up basketball reference, and I just – the whole situation right now, especially with the owner, and for anyone listening, if you haven't read Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns, his comments about really just kids these days, just a kids these days rant, where it's just talking about millennials and the issues with Markeith Morris, uh, it's a pretty fascinating read. But uh, I think he's in a bad situation. I think he's a better player than what we're seeing this year. But, Sean, you're right. Maybe he's not that good of a player. I saw him as just being an upgrade over Anthony Tolliver. And someone who can maybe take a few minutes away from Urson is a guy that might be a better defender. But that was as, about as far as I could take it. And again, it's only if we could get him for pennies on the dollar and hope that having the two of them together means that they'll, you know, stay out of trouble. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly much better than he is than this year. But that doesn't mean he's a good, a real good player for this team or a real good player overall. Yeah, I prefer Ilya Silva, for example. I mean, if, if I had both of those two guys on the roster, the Lions share the minutes would go to Ilya Silva, in my opinion. Yeah, even with Ilya Silva's injury history, if I could have either player right now play for the Pistons, given their, you know, play, contract, uh, injury history, then I would definitely still pick Urson for the Pistons. Yeah, I agree. And from what I've seen this season, that, that to me seemed, seemed like a slam dunk that – we probably got the better Morris brother, and Urson is is the better player right now, and it's it's good for the Pistons. Um, but I, I was looking at him as an upgrade over Anthony Tolliver, which kind of shows you where where he's at right now, especially as he continues to just sit on the bench and and get DNPs uh, for for Phoenix. Yeah, I mean it's a situation where they weigh him, and you can pick him up literally off waivers for pennies on the dollar. That's different than trading for him because he is making eight million bucks a season. So that, you know, yeah, he's maybe an upgrade over Anthony Tolliver in certain respects, but he's also making about two and a half times as much more money. Right. So you have to consider it as well. That's a good point. Uh, so I, I think we need to transition the conversation into what will probably be the second half of this podcast, and that is a conversation about the Hackadrummond rule and. Focusing on our player, his struggles at the line, and how teams strategize against poor free throw shooters. Uh, Andre Drummond right now is shooting a league worst 36.5% amongst players who are qualified in free throw percentages. Uh, that's really bad. Uh, it's, it's bad to the point that you don't have to go that many spots higher to start noticing guys in the 60%. Uh, so it shows just how poor he is at the free throw line. Uh, and, and teams have started to figure it out. The, the Pistons now in the top five in free throw attempts per game. Uh, Drummond, his free throw attempts continue to go up. He's averaging uh, over seven, close to seven and a half free throw attempts per game. Uh, I want to get your take on what teams do with players who shoot really poorly. So, Ben, I'll start with you. Teams that decide to hack uh, a big man who cannot shoot free throws, like we saw in last year's playoffs with the Spurs and Clippers, uh, how the Spurs kind of handled DeAndre Jordan in certain games. Um, 
What do you think of that? What do you think of the Hacka? We'll go with Hacka Drummond. He's our guy. So what do you think of the Hacka Drummond? So I have a variety of opinions on this, and I can argue in all sorts of different ways. Um, let me kind of start by saying I think that I probably am on the losing side of the argument. I don't think the NBA should change the rules to accommodate um, players who can't shoot more than 40 to 50% of their free throws and actually make them. But I recognize that I'm probably on the losing side of the argument. Um, as a fan, I don't enjoy watching it. I think it's ugly basketball. I think it's embarrassing for, for the players themselves. And I think it puts coaches in incredibly difficult situations where, just talking about Drummond, for example, he's such a huge net positive in terms of his rebounding, in terms of his ability to score in the basket, in terms of the Reggie Jackson pick-and-roll defenses have to scheme around that. So it's not just as simple as, well, we're just going to put a better free throw shoot up. Because when you take out Andre Drummond, you're taking it home the best player on the floor, at least as it relates to several of those sorts of uh, categories. So I think just from, from the perspective of being a fan, I don't enjoy it when teams go to that strategy. Um, if we want to start unpacking a larger conversation about should the NBA do anything about that, maybe maybe we can get Sean's sort of fan reactions before we do that. But sure. ultimately I'll just say for now that I'm not in favor of changing the rules uh, at this point, at least not in a drastic way. Um, because ultimately, I think players at this caliber of basketball uh, either need to be able to make 50% or more of their free throws or they, they haven't earned the right to be on the court in the first place. Um, so even though I don't like it, I think it's um, I think it's, it should stay the way it is, at least for right now. And I guess uh, answering the same question, I 100% completely understand why teams do it. I would do it if I was facing a team like the Clippers. I would hope that the Pistons would hack uh, Jordan just as the Clippers would hack Drummond. It makes you know perfect logical sense. But uh, personally, I think that there should be a rule change. I think it's it's evolved to a ridiculous extent. I think that uh, you know. They're being fouled in non-basketball plays that are technically called basketball plays. Right. And the real breaking point for me was, uh, you know, teams are just getting smarter. And so now they're fouling big men who are standing at the free throw line while the ball's in the air on a made shot so that they can send another player to the line. That's just too much for me. It, it just, I mean... Uh, I guess I'll I'll leave it there initially, but to me, it's gotten to a point where uh, the rules should be adjusted for the sake of basketball, and not not necessarily even for the sake of you know DeAndre Jordan or Andre Drummond, who are terrible th- free throw shooters, but for the sake of the game of basketball and the fans that watch basketball, I think it's time to change the rule. Okay, so Sean, I, I do want to get your uh, your proposal. What, what the the rule change would be? Because I'm sure where this conversation is going from here would probably be Ben's defense of of kind of the status quo. Uh, so, what would be uh, your rule change in the NBA? Uh, I think the the best alternative I've heard is to take these fouls that are committed intentionally and just give the opposing team. Uh, the option to choose the free throw shooter or to decline the free throws and take the ball out of bounds. Okay. Ben, what do you think about that? I don't think I like the idea of allowing them to choose the free throw shooter. Um, I'd be willing to entertain the idea, though, of taking the ball out of bounds as like a side out or something like that. That essentially, I mean, to me, that essentially makes it impossible for the team being fouled to get any advantage out of that play. Um, and it eliminates the ability for the opposing team, the team doing the foul, to reset and play defense again for however long the shot clock will be reset to, say, 10 or 14 seconds or whatever. That's actually a more reasonable proposal to deal with the issue than I think some of them that I've heard. So I'd be willing to entertain that. 
Yeah, I agree that taking the ball out of bounds when when a player is is fouled in that in that type of situation, uh, I agree. I, I like that more than having teams pick who shoots. I think that slows the game down just as much as um, the current you know uh, currently just having the player who gets fouled shoot the free throws. Um, and again, we are talking about a pretty small group of players. Um, if you're if you're looking at the league right now, guys shooting below sixty percent. It's and I'll go from best percentage to worst percentage. Nerlens Noel, Kenneth Fareed, Festus Azili, Hassan Whiteside, Dwight Howard, DeAndre Jordan, and Drummond. Uh, so those guys are the only players shooting below sixty percent. It, Sean, even though it's a small group of players, it's still worth a rule change to you. Yeah, because um, I guess here's my here's my pitch to people that are sort of of the don't change it for only a few players or players just need to learn how to make their damn free throws, which I completely understand. But uh, my counter-argument to that would be, uh, one, it's harder for big men, seven-footers with huge hands, to shoot free throws. It always has been. And now teams are just finding those weakest shooters and exploiting their lack of ability even more, which makes sense. People are strategizing better. Uh, two, um, you know, skill sets go in and out of fashion in the NBA, and I personally want there to be a place for the kinds of skill set that Andre Drummond, the non-free-throw shooter, brings. I want more players like him, even if they can't shoot free throws, those, those giant men who can jump out of the gym, rebound everything, set, you know, great picks and roll to the basket. It makes for better aesthetically pleasing basketball. And so I want more of that as opposed to a traditional big man that can shoot a free throw, but also, you know, plays a traditional post-up game. That's just a little more boring to me. And I I like this sort of pick and roll basketball that has really uh, cemented itself in the NBA. And then lastly, I would say that, uh, you know, people might think it's an overreaction to change the rules, but I would say that, uh, you know, all rules are put into place for aesthetic reasons. We want an aesthetically pleasing game. We want fans to enjoy the product they see on the floor. That's why there's a, you know, 24-second shot clock. That's why you can't spend more than three seconds in the lane. So this would just be an extension of creating a more aesthetically pleasing product by eliminating this ugly slog, you know, Mm -hmm. brick fest that we see in today's NBA. And it's going to get to a point, I think, where it happens more and more. And it's originally I was thinking of comparing it to, um, you know, the DH in baseball where I hate watching pitchers hit because pitchers can't hit. It's an automatic out. It's boring. I personally like the DH, but I think it's a little more evolved than that. It's like now with baseball where there's these, extreme shifts on the field and you're seeing offense depress in a to a great degree because everybody has an inclination to hit certain parts of the field when they when they're batting and so you know i'm i'm not so sure about what baseball should do but it's kind of that argument where you want to put an arbitrary rule in place just to make the game more pleasing to the eye and, and I would definitely say that's the case with this with this problem in basketball. So, Ben, part of Sean's defense is a more aesthetically pleasing product. And I think that's probably a lot of people, a lot of people who have a problem with the way the rules are set up right now don't like that games go on so long and games can be decided by players making or missing their free throws because of situations like intentionally fouling a player like Andre Drummond or DeAndre Jordan, uh, who are poor at free throws. So what would you do about the the length of the game and and how these plays slow down the game? Is there anything you would do? Well, with respect to slowing down the game, I don't think that, on the whole, these intentionally fouling big men who can't shoot actually happens that much. So you read read off a list of players. I think as Detroit fans we're probably biased in our perception about how much this occurs because we see it happen so much. But if you looked at all of the games across the NBA on any given night, this barely ever happens. It is not something that occurs that often. With respect to slowing down the game, the second thing I would say is 
Um, I don't think the game will speed up all that much. We're, intentional fouling is still a part of the game of basketball, even if you eliminate in some way these intentional fouls away from the ball. In any close game, within you know two or three possessions over the last two minutes of the game, you're going to see intentional fouls occur, and that is going to slow the game down. Um, so from my perspective, I don't really buy that argument a whole lot, that it's about slowing down the game or making the game faster. What I ultimately think is it's about is whether or not the game is entertaining for casual fans. I ultimately mm-hmm. think that's what the NBA is concerned about because they're ultimately concerned about money and ratings and all of those things. Is this entertaining for people who don't really love basketball or is it not? And I think it absolutely isn't. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. It's not entertaining to watch if you're not a hardcore basketball fan. What I would disagree a little bit about is whether or not certain rules that are in place now have to do with entertainment or aesthetics, as Sean put it. And I would point to the 24-second shot clock and the three-second lane violation as rules that are fundamentally about fairness and not aesthetics. And with respect to the three-second rule, um, obviously everyone who's listening knows what it is, but I think that rule is more about um, correcting an imbalance where the offense had a major advantage over the defense because they could just park their big men five feet away from the basket for an unlimited amount of time and as a result get basically unlimited number of uncontested looks or high percentage looks would be the more appropriate way to put it at the basket. So I think that rule is ultimately about fairness. And I think the shot clock is the same thing. Um, if you've ever watched a high school basketball game, you know that there isn't a shot clock in a lot of places in a lot of states. And my high school basketball team, for example, exploited that. We would get up by 15 points, and with five minutes left in the game, we would go into our layups only set. And no shot clock means we could run our offense until we could get a layup, or we could run our offense until they followed us, and there was nothing the opposing could do about that. So I think the shot clock is actually in place to eliminate that situation, which gives teams who are behind by a realistic amount of attempt to, to catch up. But anyway, taking us back on point, as someone who is absolutely a hardcore fan of basketball, it's the sport that I love more than any other sport on the face of the planet. Um, I look at when major rule changes have happened. And as a Pistons fan, I would point to, for example, the defensive rules that were changed after the Pistons won an NBA championship. And I just worry about the way that the game could be fundamentally changed in unanticipated ways when you make fundamental changes to rules like this. And I don't necessarily know what they are. I don't know what those you know, unanticipated consequences would be. But I worry about the way that it could impact the game, the way that the game was impacted, say, for example, in I think it was 2004 when they changed the rules after um, we won a championship, largely through defense. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was a very similar argument. It was games too slow, not that points being scored, but it's not entertaining for the casual fans, and so on and so forth. And you can make the case that the Pistons, with that very good defensive roster, weren't able to repeat as NBA champions because of how significantly the game changed, the way that the game was played and strategies and so on and so forth. So that's kind of my response to to Sean's points. Uh, And I would like to also just echo, I totally get why people want to change it. I, I totally get it. But for me, I care very, very little about the casual NBA fan who doesn't understand the rules because I'm just a hardcore fan and I really care about the integrity of the game. And to me, when you change the rules, um, you don't necessarily violate the integrity, but you risk it. You mm-hmm. risk unanticipated consequences. And then you might get into the place where you're having to tinker with rules for 10 years to figure out how to fix it. So um, to me, the much simpler solution to this problem, because we're talking about really less than 10 players, fewer than 10 players in the entire NBA that can be exploited by this strategy one, acquire players who do enough of those other things, like an Aaron Baines, who can also rebound and also play defense and also make a shot from five feet away, mm-hmm. but can also make 60% of his free throws. Because ultimately what we're talking about, specifically in the context of the Pistons, who average about one point per offensive possession. That's about what they average. In order for Andre Drummond to break even and to totally negate this strategy of following him and putting him on the line, he'd only need to shoot 51%. And if he shot 51%, he'd actually do better than the Pistons as a whole do on any given possession. So, Hmm. to me, that's a much simpler solution. You acquire players who can shoot 51% or more, 
you put them in the game and you eliminate the strategy as a possibility. So to me, that's a much simpler fix than fundamentally changing the rules. Sorry, that was a very long rant, but I obviously have, have thought a lot about this. Yeah, I enjoyed it. That, that, was, that was a soapbox moment. I really enjoyed it. And Ben, I, I think I, I agree with you, and I hope I remember this conversation, because if it costs the Pistons a game in the playoffs, because it, like you said, it, being a, a hardcore basketball fan, I'm a Pistons fan first, and if this costs us a game in the playoffs, I'm sure I'll want the rule changed, at least in that moment. Uh, if, if Drummond getting fouled and, and not being able to make his free throws costs us a close game in the playoffs, I'm sure I'm going to want that rule changed. So I'll try to remember this conversation. Uh, but I can't guarantee it, especially when I look at our overall free throw percentage. I thought it would improve just just at some point. But to be at 65.6% still, uh, I did some uh, some of that like crazy late night basketball reference research, which which I happen to which I always do like after a loss with the Pistons, uh, and I want to say it was after the Pacers loss. And looking at that, this would be if the Pistons right now if they finish at about sixty five percent for the season at free throw percentage, it would be the worst a team has shot from the free throw line since the seventies. Oh my gosh! So we're looking at a historically bad free throw shooting team. How is this not improved, Sean? I guess I'll go to you first because Ben, I know we've talked about this before. How is the free throw shooting still so poor for the Pistons, especially when they're averaging so many free throws a temp, a fifth in the league at almost 26 a game? Well, I think the simple answer is Andre Drummond shoots a ton of free throws, and Andre Drummond's having, even for him, uh, his worst year ever making free throws. And so that is sort of an albatross around the team's neck as far as uh, doing anything at the free throw line. Yeah, that's very true. Drummond's definitely a big part of it because his his seven free throws account for more than a quarter of the team's attempts. So uh, that's definitely a part of it. I still thought there we would we'd be a team closer to what we did last year, low seventies in terms of percentages. And with how this team is playing, if we continue to see more close games and we're on that playoff bubble, that's something that's going to be very important going forward. Is how this team shoots at the free throw line. Yeah, I'm not sure what their percentage would be if you remove Drummond from the court. Uh, oh, I'm trying to check NBA Wowie right now and see if I can get the number pretty quickly here. But it doesn't look like I'll be able to. But, I mean, there's just a lot of not great free throw shooters on this team, unfortunately. And Drummond, obviously, is the worst. There's only a, a couple players you actually trust at the free throw line, which is depressing. Uh, but... <laughs> If if you do take Andre Drummond out of the equation, I think it's pretty safe to say they go from the worst in history to only slightly less than mediocre. And so uh, it's just unfortunate that Andre Drummond can't make his free throws in this environment, and hopefully someday he gets better at it. Yeah, that's true. I'm trying to do the math right now. Uh, yeah, I am too. <laughs> I was wondering why it sounded even quieter. Right. Everybody's Just trying to do math. Calculators are out. This is and it, that's it's troubling stuff. I'm trying to do this right now. Um, I've got and and Ben, you can check my work here. About seventy six percent, seventy five point eight is what I have. Yeah, I've got seventy seven point eight. So yeah, we'd be right right in the seventy five to seventy six percent range. Right, which puts a smack dab in the middle of the league. So, Sean, you're right. I guess it's just Andre's albatross that's kind <laughs> of causing the worst it. free throw shooter of all time, and you shoot <laughs> a lot of them, you tend to skew the numbers a little bit. That's very true. That's very true. So I guess I shouldn't be that upset about it. Um, I'm still I'm glad I did the, the work I did to see how poorly we're shooting as a team, but you're right. It's probably just, again, a knock against Drummond. Uh, maybe yeah, un- I mean, unfairly so. Free throw but. attempts for the whole team. Drummond has shot 260 free throws. The next guy is Reggie Jackson, and it's 158. So we're talking about 102 more free throws than Reggie Jackson, which is astounding. And that's why I think, personally, we as Pistons fans are – we see this happen so much, but we don't realize that it just doesn't happen that much, I guess is kind of part of my point. Yeah, I guess that's true. And it's it's – happened in a few high-profile moments, so I'm sure people, especially the casual fan, probably feel that it happens more than it really does. 
Well, and it's happened with superstars too, right? Like, so you talk about Hack a Shack. This is where it sort of originated. And you look at Dwight Howard. And yeah, it's these high-profile big men, as Sean mentioned, who historically have struggled at the free throw line. So it's happening in key moments in the NBA Finals where everybody's watching. Uh, and so it definitely gets a little bit more exposure in those moments. Yeah, I think it's so funny we call it Hack a Shack because that's a player who averaged um, who averaged uh, over fifty percent for for his career in free throw uh, in free throw percentage. Actually, had a few seasons where he was close to or over sixty percent. Uh, yeah, and at that percentage, you're doing better than breaking even. Right. I don't think if you look at the long view, the big picture view, it's not even a good strategy because you're giving the team the opportunity to do better than they normally do in terms of their points per possession. That's why I'm a little afraid that logic might not apply in real-world situations. Like, let's say Drummond magically, or, you know, through hard work, (laughs) uh, got up over 50%. I still think, A, people would just remember that he is a bad free-throw shooter and used to be horrible, and B, people just don't crunch those numbers, and they go by their gut. So you're still going to see Drummond and other players packed when they're in the 50%-ish range. And you'd probably need to be closer to, you know, closer to 60% before you absolutely eliminated it as a potential strategy that opponents would use. Yeah, you'd have to get up in the 60% range. You're right. You're absolutely correct. And just to, you know, be clear, if I'm watching a game... And Andre Drummond's hitting 55% of his free throws, so technically the Pistons are coming out ahead during the strategy. Mm-hmm. I still don't want to see the strategy. I hate it. It's horrible to watch, and it just makes the game experience unpleasant. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It is absolutely awful to watch. The thing that I've struggled with the most is a lack of viable alternatives, and maybe you're sort of side out scenario um maybe that works maybe that works the thing i the other thing i didn't talk about when i was on my soapbox was um i think one of the things that the nba has done historically has made it easier and easier and easier for offenses they've preferred offense every time there's a major rule change it's easier for offenses rather than defenses and i think You know, at that level of basketball, the margin for error is so small uh, in that the exploits in the matchups that you have to take advantage of, there's just so little to be gained because the players are so good that it makes it harder and harder for teams to win via defense. In other words, if you're down by eight points and it's getting harder and harder to play defense, how in the heck do you come back from an eight-point deficit in, in two minutes? So I guess that's part of the other reason I'm little bit passionate about this is I think the game has changed so much to favor offense already that I I want some of those tactics and strategies that exist for defenses to remain in the game so that you can see those really exciting comebacks um, that you know you might not otherwise have if these some of these strategies are eliminated so but I guess no one's really proposing that you take intentional fouling off the table completely so maybe that's just sort of something I've invented that's, you know, exists in my mind, but not in the real world. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think it makes sense to have these off-the-ball fouls that don't even involve the action that's occurring on the floor. And they're just, you know. And if they continue to allow it, I think uh, refs are pretty uh, stingy with allowing the half-court heave from Reggie Jackson to count as a shot, like yeah, they're supposed to. That's true. Because they know what the other team's trying to do, and they know the Pistons know and all that garbage. And ugh, it, I just wish it was not something we had to worry about, and I just wish it wasn't a part of the game. I do too, and that's the thing, is I totally wish it were a part of the game. I just wish that the players could make their free throws 50% of the time. <laughs> That would be nice. Yeah, I'm just hoping that Drummond can get to that hack-a-shack level, because 52% sounds pretty great right now. Oh, it sounds like heaven. <laughs> I'm pretty happy with where the pod is at right now. That was an hour that went by pretty quick. I hope everyone that's listening agrees. So, Sean, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and talking to us. Did you have an article up recently, Sean? Wasn't there something you wrote in the last couple of days? Oh, uh, today is the, as we're recording, it is the anniversary of the Form of Fucking Wall Night, 
which is a very special place in all of our hearts. So there's something on the site that sort of commemorates the one-year anniversary of Pistons' miraculous win over the Spurs, Brandon Jennings kind of uh, turning the corner and becoming a, a Pistons hero instead of a Pistons villain. And uh, so that's the latest thing that, that I put up on the site. Well, happy formal wall day, guys. I didn't realize today was the anniversary. That's great. Such a perfect Pistons moment, like a historic <laughs> Pistons moment. So, yeah, kudos, Sean, for putting up a great post about that. Yeah, awesome. Everyone should check that out, uh, DetroitBadBoys.com. At this point in the season, it's a site you have to check every day. Ben, I know we'll be back doing the pod probably very soon, and continue to support DetroitBadBoys.com. Continue to put up those fan posts, uh, fan shots, and send in your questions. Hashtag AskDBB. If you're listening at this point in the episode, absolutely, I'm sure you have questions as a diehard Pistons fan. Send them in. We'll answer as many as we can like we do most weeks on this podcast. Uh, so thanks to both of you guys, and uh, I'll be talking to both of you soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Have an awesome week. All right. You too.